Good evening, everyone, and welcome to LSE for this public lecture on decision-making under risk and uncertainty. My name is Jason Alexander. I'm a professor in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method at the LSE, and it's a privilege to be able to chair this event. Tonight's lecture is part of a series organized by the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science at the LSE. And I'd like to thank everyone who was involved who was part of making this happen. The plan for tonight is as follows. Professor Gigerenzer will speak for approximately 50 minutes, and then we'll have about 30 minutes left over for questions from the audience. After that time, he'll be signing copies of his book, of which you'll be able to buy some copies outside if you wish. Professor Gigerenzer is a long-standing friend of the LSE, and his talk here tonight is just the most recent of what I hope to be many future appearances here at the school. He's currently director of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. Prior to that, he was professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. He has many publications to his name, at least 200 published articles. I have to confess I stopped counting at that point. He has nine books and many edited volumes. But what I would like to mention is some of his work which I find even more impressive. And it's that aside from his incredible productivity, he has made a serious effort to have a real impact upon the world and to make a difference. Let me give a few examples. He has been involved in teaching medical doctors how to improve their abilities at calculating and communicating the risk that their individual patients face. He has testified before the German parliament on the illusions that intricate risk models present. He has been involved in advising intelligence services and counter-terrorist agencies on risk management. And I've just been informed that before coming to the LSE, he managed to stop by the House of Lords for a brief visit. Now, this last point actually enables me to segue to the topic of his talk tonight. How so? Well, back in 2008, The Economist published a short article in which they said, human beings are fallible, lazy, stupid, greedy, and weak, end quote. It's often said that people are irrational and make bad decisions. And this is part of the reason why Cameron, in in bringing in the nudge unit shortly after taking office, thought that that was an appropriate response to people's decision-making. They thought that people needed to be coerced in order to make good decisions. People might be lazy, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily make bad decisions. Much of Professor Gigerenzer's career has been concerned with showing how people, through the use of heuristics, efficient rules of thumb, can make very good decisions on their own. People are certainly boundedly rational, but whereas some people would want to view this as a glass half empty, Geard sees things entirely differently. People can be educated to use their heuristics and rules of thumb to make very good decisions on their own without any coercion. 
And tonight what he's going to do is talk to us about how through using some of these techniques, we can become better at thinking about risk and how we can all become risk savvy. Please join me in welcoming Professor Guy Granzer. Remember the volcanic ash cloud over Iceland? The subprime disaster? How about medical disease? Every new crisis makes us worry until we forget and start worrying about the next one. If something goes wrong, we are told the way to prevent the next crisis is better technology, bigger bureaucracy, and stricter laws. How to cope with the threat of terrorism, homeland security, full body scanners, and further sacrifice of individual freedom? How to, in, how to counter the rising cares in health, the rising costs of health care? Now, tax hikes, rationalization, better genetic markers. One idea is missing from these lists. Risk-savvy citizens. And there is a reason. Jason just explained what the economist said. Human beings, that's you, are fail-able, yeah? lazy, weak, and greedy, and stupid in addition. We are told that we are irrational slaves of our appetites, open to every whims, and addicted to sex, smoking, and electronic gadgets. 20-year-olds drive with cell phones glued to their, f to their ears oblivious to the fact that this reduces the reaction time to that of a 70-year-old. A fifth of Americans believe that they are in the 1% top income group, and as many believe they will soon be there. Books tell us that we are not only irrational, but predictably irrational and in need to be nudged into sensible behavior. All this suggests that Homo sapiens is a misnomer. We might better be called Homo Simpsons. <laughs> and that the only viable strategy is some form of paternalism. That is, collect the experts, close the doors, and let the public know what they should do. This is not the message you will hear this evening. I will uh, give you some uh, insight in the research that I'm doing at the Max Planck Institute and that of many colleagues, which suggests something very different. First, everyone can learn to deal with risk and uncertainty. Second, if you think that there are experts and there's no need for you to get risk-savvy, that may be a dangerous thing. Bitter experience shows that many doctors, financial advisors, and other risk experts do not understand the risks themselves or do not know how to communicate them to you 
or even worse, pursue interests that are not aligned with yours or fear litigation. All that shows that you need to think yourself. Literacy, the ability to read and write, was the lifeblood of a democracy. But today, reading and writing is not enough. Risk literacy, that is, how to deal with risk and uncertainty, is necessary for a 21st century technological society where we don't even know what's coming in the future. Without it, you risk your money and your health. You might think that risk literacy is already taught, but you will look in vain for it in most high schools, law schools, and medical schools. As a result, most of us are risk illiterate. What I want to do today with you is to uh, invite you into the to voyage into the world of risk and uncertainty. And I will give you some examples of simple principles that everyone can learn who dares to know. I emphasize dare to know, but some of the things I will say may pose problems to many of us because they require that you stand up. Stand up against authority like a doctor. And uh, use critical thinking and take the remote control of your emotions in your own hand. Are you ready? Then we start. I begin with a, a modest risk, namely getting soaked. A um, newscaster in US TV once announced the weather this way. The probability that it will rain on Saturday is 50%. The probability that it will rain on Sunday is also 50%. Therefore, he concluded, the probability that it will rain on the weekend is 100%. <laughs> we laugh at that. But do you know what it means if you hear that tomorrow there is a 30% chance of rain. 30% of what? I live in Berlin. Most Berliners we have asked believe that it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the time. That is seven to eight hours. Others believe it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the region. That is most likely not where I live. Most New Yorkers we investigated think that both is nonsense. It means that it will rain on 30% of the days for which this prediction has been made. That is most likely not at all. Are people stupid? The problem here is not so much individual stupidity, but it is the inability of experts to communicate in clear terms what they want to say. In this case, the class to which a probability refers to. Time, region, days. What the uh, meteorologists want to say is that it will rain in 30% of the days, for which this 
prediction has been made in a, a minimum of maybe a tenth of an inch. But how shall we know? And if you have some, if you have more imagination, you can think about other reference classes, such as one lady in New York said to us, I know what 30% means. Three meteorologists think it rains and seven not. <laughs> Getting soaked is a minor hazard to most of us. How are we doing when, we, when the risks are higher? And before I get to this, to uh, stop this misunderstanding, there is a simple principle, namely, always ask, percentage of what? And then it's done. Okay. The UK has many impressive traditions. The tea, scones, and the queen but also the contraceptive pills care. Every couple of years, women are alarmed that the contraceptive pill leads to thrombosis. The most famous care went this way. The US Committee of Safety of Medicines sent about 190,000 dear doctor letters and convened a, an alarm uh, press conference announcing that the contraceptive pill of the third generation increases the risk of thrombosis twofold, that is, by 100%. Isn't that almost certain? Many women thought so, and in panic dropped the pill, which led to unwanted pregnancies and abortions. How much is 100%? The study on which these news were based showed that out of every 7,000 women who took the pill of the previous generation, one had a thrombosis, which increased to two among those who took the pill of the new generation. From one to two, this is one in every 7,000. That's called an absolute risk increase. And it's the same as 100%. That's called a relative risk increase. That, um, that simple news caused an estimated 13,000 additional abortions in the following year in England and Wales. If the news would have reported the absolute risks, very few women would have cared, and probably no one all of these abortions and unwanted pregnancies would have been avoided. But till the present day, not everyone knows about the simple difference between absolute and relative risk. And what happened here, that particular high among teenagers were these uh, unwanted pregnancies and abortions. It would be easy to teach every teenager the difference between an absolute risk, one in 7,000, and a relative risk, 100%. But it's still not done. In this case, almost everyone lost. The National Health Service paid four to six million for abortion provisions. The poor women spent the rest of their lives with the realization I aborted. 
And even the stocks of the pharmaceutical industry went down. Among the few who profited were the journalists who got the news on the front page, as here in the Sunday Times. Kiss of death, 100%. This, again, there is a simple remedy. Always ask for absolute risks and don't accept relative risks, 100%. The trick to mislead women with relative risk is not only played by journalists. It is also played by national health services. Here's an example. What is the benefit of mammography screening? The answer, the Welsh NHS leaflet says, breast cancer screening has been shown to reduce the risk of dying from breast cancer by around 35%. That's big, isn't it? That probably means that out of every 100 women who participate, the life of 35 is saved, isn't it? The, uh, and many of these uh, informations are around. What does it mean? Part of uh, the activities in my group are designing transparent information so that everyone, women or men, can understand the evidence. Here is one way. It's called a fact box. A fact box summarizes the, all the randomized studies. In this case, these are hundreds of thousands of women and breaks it down in simple, understandable terms. And there's no use of misleading statistics like relative risk. So uh, what you see here is the total, so you have uh, 100, sorry, 1,000 women who don't participate in screening and 1,000 who participate in screening. The question is, what happens 10 years later? Benefit, breast cancer mortality in the no screening group, five die, from breast cancer in the screening group, four. Absolute risk reduction, one in 1,000. If you want to mislead women, how do you communicate that? Not as one in 1,000, but as a 20% risk reduction. And what the leaflets did, they rounded up to 35%. See? The second information you may not have ever heard the total cancer mortality is exactly the same. That is, we have no proof that mammography screening saves a single life. And also the total mortality is the same. But quite a few women are harmed. And there are two potential harms. One is uh, women who do not have breast cancer, but the test isn't very good. You get false positive and biopsies. That is estimated to happen to between 50 to 200 out of every 1,000 women. And finally, uh, women with non-progressive cancer, that is a cancer that is only technically a cancer, but you would never notice this during your life, is detected. And these women get then lumpectomies, mastectomies, which by definition don't do any benefit, only harm. With a fact box, everyone can make up her own mind about screening. 
If you think that fact boxes are published in the UK, not so far. We'll try to get it there. The Germans are also very hesitant about publishing fact boxes. There might be questions raised by women. Why have we been told that we need to go if the evidence is like that? Um, <clears throat> there, uh, we also worked with fact boxes for men. Huh? And uh, if you want to know the evidence for PSA screening, there's a book afterwards where you can look it up. <laughs> okay, let me go over. I'll give you a second example, and that's to the point that the experts themselves need training. I have trained more than 1,000 doctors in their continuing medical education. And I'll give you an example about a very useful tool, besides fact boxes, that every doctor can learn in order to understand what a test result means. So here's the situation. Um, in continuing medical education, there, yeah, the doctors are maybe 160 or so. And I started, and these are gynecologists, and started with a traditional, with something that is their everyday business. So, for instance, you perform mammography screening, and a woman tests positive, and she wants to know what that means. And she asks you, doctor, do I have breast cancer, or how likely is it? 99%, 90%, 50%, please tell me. Every gynecologist should know the answer. But that's not the case. And I give them, in addition, information so they can derive the answer in case they don't know. And I will do with you now the same thing. I first give you the information in the way that medical students get them in probabilities, exactly conditional probabilities. And I hope I can confuse you. And then I show a tool, a simple tool, that you can learn in a minute. Uh, it's called natural frequencies where you can represent the same information that you will see through. Are you ready? Okay, let me try to confuse you. Here's the information that you know. The probability that women in this group has breast cancer is 1%. Second, if a woman has breast cancer, the probability that the, mammogram, the mammography is positive is 90%. Third, if a woman does not have breast cancer, the probability that the test is nevertheless positive is 9%. Thus, you have a prevalence of 1%, a sensitivity or hit rate of 90%, and a false positive rate of 9%. What do you tell this woman? What's her chance that she actually has cancer? And it's screening. You know nothing else about her. If there is now fog in your mind, that's the same condition under which the gynecologists are. And I'll just show you what the answer of the gynecologists is. So they have four, uh, four alternatives, and I spread these alternatives as far as apart as it's possible. Every point is a gynecologist. So there are 90% who think the answer is one in 100. So that's her chance to actually have cancer. Others think it's 10 in 100, but the majority think it's 90 or 81%. Huh? 
So basically certain. The reason why I choose 81 is because from previous story, uh, studies, I know that many doctors in desperation take the sensitivity, 90%, and deduct the false positive rate, 9%. Yet it makes no sense, but it's desperation. And again, we have some here. If women would know that variability, they would be really, really frightened. Now, you still, I hope you are confused. And I tell you what to do. The simple method is you translate these probabilities into natural frequencies. How does this go? Let's make it simple. You start with a number, say 100 women. And now you translate all the information in that. We expect that one of them has cancer. And she likely tests positive. That's the 90%. Among the 99 who do not have cancer, we expect another 9 who test positive. Makes 10 who test positive. Question, how many of those who test positive do actually have cancer? Now you see it. It's 1 out of 10. So that's the 10 out of 100. When I teach these doctors this simple method, and at the end of the session, I give them the probabilities. They don't know the answer. And they have learned with other problems to apply them. Then the majority of doctors now understands what's the positive predictive value. That's the technical term. There are a few hopeless cases on the top, <laughs> but I can't do everything in 75 minutes. So here is a simple method that can help everyone to understand the result of screening tests, whether this is screening for Down syndrome or for uh, okay, uh, any kind of screening in pre-borns and newborns. And the ability of doctors to understand the meaning of a test is the more important the more tests are done. And now we can, in some countries, the entire genome is screened. And you can just imagine how many false positives there will be. And we do not want that parents uh, are frightened. And we know from studies that many uh, parents who do not understand the amount of false positives are frightened, and even if it shows it was just a false positive, they continue for many years to watch their child very carefully and interpret almost everything as something to worry. And the effect is there are some studies on children. The children themselves then turn into a worrisome child. child. I'll show you now how this works. <clears throat> Here you have on the right side the representation that's used to teach doctors <coughs> and which confuses their minds. On the left side, natural frequencies. Why does this work? It's very simple. The representation changes the computation. Uh, that's called Bayes' rule. And if you look at this, you know why you were confused. Natural frequencies make the calculation simple. And what you see here is roughly 10 out of 100, like 1 out of 10. 
So we know and we can deduce what representations work, what not. For instance, relative frequencies are the same as those conditional probabilities, and they will cause the same confusion as conditional probabilities. Here is a summary of what we have done in the last years. On health information policy, uh, we have managed in Germany uh, that all misleading statistics have been removed from all, almost all cancer screening pamphlets. That hasn't happened in the UK. How do you do this? Not by argument, but uh, I have been... I'm giving many talks to medical societies in Germany, typically the opening lecture, and I've always pointed out one of the reasons why you, the doctors, don't understand the evidence are these pamphlets. You need to understand that most doctors do not read medical journals, and for the simple reasons, because they don't have the training to understand the statistics. And... Uh, and I said in public, the German Cancer Care, this is the major organization, is on its way to lose the trust of the public. And at the end, they believed it, and we helped them to rewrite the brochures. So threat of reputation is one means that works. But in Germany, no society has dared to publish a fact box. That would be too clear. And the first one, amazingly, has been published in Austria, which is not known for revolutionary thought. I was there when they uh, had their ceremony, and you can bet yeah, how much fire they got from the head of the local Innsbruck uh, gynecology department. And there was rage among the directors of clinics, which are used that patients look to them like gods and surrender, not to evidence. But we managed that. Huh? Um, another thing, medical education. So uh, my researchers have trained several thousand physicians. And also medical schools have now begun to teach this and other tools, which I cannot go in, uh, in order to change the medical education. And communication tools like natural frequencies are now standard in many uh, medical societies, evidence-based societies, including the medicine and healthcare products regulatory agency in this country. Now think a bit. You may have read in the behavioral economics literature, in the social psychology literature, that people ignore base rate, that people cannot do Bayesian inference. We have heard this for many, many years. We can teach even doctors to do Bayesian inference. I mean, 87%, not everyone. Yeah? <laughs> and we also can teach even fourth graders to do this. So I just say that to warn you against this message you may have read in books like Thinking Fast and Slow, that we are basically dumb and there's no hope for us. Yeah? I'll show you. This is a, an experiment we did with fourth graders and second graders. And here is no mammography problem, but something that interests them. And in one version, there were also icons. And just look at the result. Among the fourth graders, when 
the text was added by items, more than half of them certainly see the Bayesian answer, and just with numbers, almost half. And even some among the second graders can do it. So we could train, it's just an example, young people to get risk savvy, to understand risk, if we only would start, rather than saying, oh, then it will never learn it. I come to the second half of my talk. The first one was about risk, situations where we have large epidemiological data and we can understand or think with risk. In this world, logic and statistics is enough, but not in a world of uncertainty. Uncertainty means that not all alternatives, not all consequences, and not all probabilities can be known or can be reliably estimated. So a risk situation, you've got a few of them. For instance, if you play roulette in the casino, um, you can calculate how much you will probably lose in the long run. You don't need intuition. In other problem, how to invest my money, whom to marry, whom to trust, you can't calculate the right answer. And we need other things like intuition and heuristics. Heuristics are simple rules of thumb. And note, the, uh, my argument will be that in a world of uncertainty, it is not true that probability theory is always better than simple rules of thumb. And I'll give you a few examples. First, what's an intuition? An intuition is a judgment that appears quickly in consciousness. I feel what's the right thing to do. But I cannot explain it. The underlying processes are not full aware. They are in the unconscious, but it's nevertheless strong enough to guide actions. So the opposite of an intuition is weighing cos, pros, and, pros and cons. This is my fifth lecture in three days. <laughs> and uh, so intuition is looked upon, uh, considered as something, yeah, the source of all of our errors and so on. And many social psychologists spend their careers on, on trying to prove that intuition is mostly wrong. Yeah, if only these psychologists would do uh, study the real world hmm? rather than the text problems. I have worked with large companies, and I will give you one example of a large international technology provider, and have asked the uh, managers through the entire levels into the executive board, how often is an important uh, professional decision, how often do you make the important professional decisions by your guts? Precisely, how often is at the end a gut decision? Again, intuition is not uh, an arbitrary decision. It is not a sixth sense or God's wish. It's also not something that only women have. We men have also intuitions. And typically, it is based on years and years of experience. The point is, you feel what you should do, but you can't explain it. 
It's not in language. And it's a very simple way to, to realize that most parts of your brain are not able to speak. And if you would ignore the information that's in the other parts, good luck. So the typical situation is that a decision maker in that firm or a group of managers are buried by a by a mountain of information and data partially contradicting or sometimes you ask yourself why did he give me this information in the first place and then there is no algorithm to calculate the correct answer but and if someone has a feeling a gut feeling where to go that's what I mean question what do you think what proportion of important a professional decisions like setting up a plant in Beijing, or rather not, is at the end a gut decision. What do you think? No, one percent. According to, I don't know what exactly LSE teaches, so probably you, you're not learning about gut decisions, except it might be something you better don't do, or. <laughs> So what's happening outside? Okay, I'll show you. The important thing is, nobody says, never, so I make never a gut decision, and nobody says always. So you see the hierarchy uh, from the uh, managers to into the executive board. So a group executive in this company would be responsible for several billions. And on average, Every other decision is based on a gut decision. But these managers would never admit this in public. There's fear. There's fear about accountability, and intuition has a bad, bad name in this area of our society, not in other areas. If you, for instance, think about yourself, how did you choose your partner? Did you make a pro-contra list? Hmm. Then it's okay, huh? but not here. Hmm. I have seen two methods to uh, hide gut decisions in public. The first one is to find reasons after the fact. So a manager might have a gut feeling but he or she doesn't dare to say this in public, so you send an employee to look for reason for two weeks. Then he comes back, and the manager presents the decision as a fact-based decision. Big data. This is a waste of time, intelligence, and money. There is a more expensive version. You hire a consulting firm, and they deliver a 200-page product explaining why the decision is fact-based, including PowerPoint. <laughs> that is a waste of more money, time, and intelligence. So that's the first version. The second way to deal with the anxiety about intuition is called defensive decision-making. That means that you, as a manager believe or feel that option A would be the best thing to do, but it's intuitive. If it goes wrong, you can't explain it. So you rather recommend a second or third class option 
to follow. One, if things go wrong, it's not so much your responsibility. For instance, because everyone else does it. That's called defensive decision-making. Note it means that you protect yourself and hurt the company. How often does defensive decision-making happen in this company? What do you guess? 1% of the cases? 2 5 who does it in the hierarchy? Who not? I'll show you the answer. Note that the distribution is quite different. We have on the left side uh, managers who say, I never do this. And if you ask them, you get answers like, if the company is well, I'm well. If the company is not in good shape, I'm not in good shape. Here the Interests of the individual and the company are aligned. And that's a, this is the managers you want. On the other extreme, you have some who say almost always. If you interview them, they tell you this company has no error culture. If you make an error, you're punished, so better do nothing. Or one said simply, what I do is cover my ass. In general, between a third and half of all important professional decisions are defensive in this company. In this company, is no exception to others. If that company would develop a culture and not this self-defensive culture, they could save lots of money and have a different climate where everyone likes to work rather than yeah, cover up. Defensive decision-making is not just a problem in uh, companies, but also in healthcare. If you visit your doctor and assume that your doctor recommends to you the best thing, you may be lucky because you have the one or other doctor who does this, but many doctors practice defensive decision-making. They advise you treatments, surgery, biopsies, and cancer screening methods they would never advise to their own family members. That's called over-treatment, over-diagnosis. That, the amount varies between countries. It depends much on the litigation system. It's highest in the U.S. A study... Uh, asked over 800 doctors in the U.S. who are in high litigation practices, like gynecologists, surgeons, brain surgeons, whether they practice defensive medicine. What percentage do you think said yes? Hmm? 93%. And that's probably an underestimate, because not everyone admits it, also not to himself. Just like that is probably an underestimate, what you get. That also tells you that here the problem is with the experts, and also not just with the expert, because the doctor cannot other, certainly not in the U.S., because it's you who sues, and the entire litigation system behind that. 
So one needs to understand the situation in which a doctor is in. And I've uh, shown you two factors. One was in numeracy. Most doctors do not know the evidence. Second, <coughs> defensive medicine. And that's not their fault, the second one. And third, conflicts of interest. If one doesn't do uh, an imaging technique like an, F, like an MRI, the clinic loses money. Uh, the same problem is also in politics. If more and more politicians who do not, well, it's hard to find out what their point is, There's, yeah, and who are rather trying to uh, follow other goals that protect themselves, in this case, being re-elected. Here is a way to summarize this second part, how to slow down innovation. And that also holds in sciences, not just in companies. Always mistrust gut feelings. Now, as a director of a Max Planck Institute, if I would have no gut feelings, I would never do innovative research. I would just add an iota to the things they have published anyhow, and everyone who does this becomes, if you do this, you will become a professor. That's not a problem. But innovation means also to take risks and then check them. Second, require a rational justification of every new idea. Otherwise, don't accept it. And finally, yeah, cover your ass. You know, create a culture of defensive decision-making and a negative error culture. What is a negative error culture? A negative error culture is a culture in which the assumption is errors should never occur. Second, if they occur, try to hide them. Third, if you can't hide them, blame someone. <laughs> a positive error culture is one which assumes that errors will always occur. Second, if one occur, make it public and find out how can we reduce the chance that it occurs again. And at the end, you will have fewer errors in a positive error culture. What is an example for a positive error culture? The international airlines, commercial airlines. Uh, one of my uh, doctoral students, she is a captain of Lufthansa, and she studies the error culture of Lufthansa versus hospitals. Hospitals are an example for negative error cultures, not everyone, but most, where uh, it is a dangerous thing to admit to an error because you might sue, and that's one of the reasons why so many errors keep going. In the U.S., estimates are that every year between roughly 50 and 100,000 Americans die in hospitals from preventable and documented errors. If one would only spend all the money that we waste on cancer screening yeah, in patient safety, one could save lives. But I do not know a single health system, maybe except the Finnish, who has, who actually, whose primary goal is the patient. Mostly, if you ask yourself, why do we have this misinformation of the public? Someone has an interest. 
that's not yours. In my third part, I want to address the confusion between risk and uncertainty. Note again, uh, a human being has a number of tools. Some of them are useful in a world of risk, that's statistical thinking, logic. Others you need in addition in a world of uncertainty, that's rules of thumb, that's good intuitions. Nevertheless, the, we have both in sciences and also in the world of finance a number of people who believe there's only one tool for everything. It's probability theory and if, or subjective Bayesianism. And that may be a dangerous thing. That's the idea that you could predict or model every form of uncertainty with the same tool. And I'll show you now one example for the turkey illusion. Why is it called turkey illusion? The concept goes back to Bertrand Russell for the philosophers. Assume you are a turkey. It's the first day of your life. A man comes in and you fear he will kill me, but he feeds you. On the second day, he's coming again. You fear he will kill me, but he feeds you. Third day, same thing. By any Bayesian models or other models, the probability that he will feed you increases every day a bit, and on day 100, it is higher than ever before. But it's the day before Thanksgiving, and you're dead meat. <laughs> the turkey illusion probably happens less often to turkeys than to people. Think back about the time before 2007, 2008, before the financial crisis. The certainty that it will go on like as it were, as suggested by the rating agencies or by the calculations by the bank, went on and increased up to shortly before everything happened. I'll give you a concrete example of the Turkey illusion. And I deal with a specific problem, namely with exchange rates and with dollar-euro exchange rates. Every end, at the end of every year, the major banks in the world make predictions about the exchange rate in a year, at the end of the next year. These predictions are very much wanted and often bought, so something that's expensive must be good, isn't it? How good are they? I have analyzed the predictions of 22 major banks. And I think you have everything here who has fame or infame. Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Bank of America, HSBC, UBS, uh, the Deutsche Bank, and so on. What you see here is the euro dollar exchange rate 1.0 means one dollar one euro up euro is stronger and down the opposite the i have used 10 years because with one year you can show everything that you want um, what you see here these predictions are made uh, by, I'm just looking for a pointer, but just I use my finger. <laughs> These predictions were made in December 2000 for the next year, so end of December 2001. 
you, uh, there are 22 points, and the circle is the mean prediction, and it's about one to one. The Deutsche Bank predicted one dollar is one euro. So, what happened with the real exchange rate? It was lower than all the estimates except one. This was Citibank, now Citigroup, and that was the last time Citigroup was lucky. <laughs> now assume you are a high-paid analyst in the city of London or in, in Wall Street or in Frankfurt, and you've seen this result. How do you place the predictions for next year? Do you go up or down? Down, yes. That's what they did. What did the exchange rate do? Went up. <laughs> Note that it's outside the entire range of predictions. And the range is not trivial. It's above 20 cents. Now, what do you do now? Do you go up or down? Up, yes. I guess you could get a much better paid job. <laughs> You got the idea. They go up. What does the exchange rate do? It goes farther up. Again, outside the entire range. What do you do now? Yeah, you got the, got the key idea. Whatever these mathematical models are that they use, they're secret because they're so good. <laughs> we do not know, but they basically predict next year will be like last year. So they go up. What does the exchange rate do? Once again, outside of the entire range of prediction. So what do you do now? Ah, you know, you go up, exchange rate goes down. <laughs> then you go down, exchange rate goes up. At least it's in the ballpark for the first time. What do you do now? You know it. You know, last time you go up, you go up. Exchange rate goes even further up. Again, outside of the range. And you go up, it goes down. This is the first hit and the last one in 10 years. Now you go down, it's again outside of the range, then you go, uh, the predictions go up, the, uh, well, it goes down. So this is an illustration of a turkey illusion. The attempt to predict something, calculate something that cannot be calculated, at least not with this model, with these things. Why do the banks nevertheless continue to provide these uh, predictions? And why do people and managers want these predictions? I could do the same with the stock market. Wouldn't be different, but that's more known. There are two possible explanations. One is that the uh, managers who buy this don't know how bad the predictions are. But there's a more interesting one. They at least feel how bad they are. You probably have never seen anything like this, and you know there's a good reason why the bank don't publish that. But they may well feel how bad this is, but buy them nevertheless. Why? For defensive reasons. So if I make my own estimate as a top manager, and it turns out to be wrong, it's my responsibility. But if I buy the prediction from UBS, it's their problem. It's not my responsibility. Again, we have a waste of talent at the beginning of this chain of young, mathematically skilled people, the so-called quants, 
who every year make these predictions and fail every year, and then they make the models more complex, which is the wrong way to go, as you will see, and uh, nevertheless earn good money. And then there are managers who want to have this, want to buy these worthless predictions in order to, yeah, to do defensive decision-making and delegate the responsibility. Another game in our society that helps nobody, it's just a waste of talent. We would like at the Max Planck Institute to hire these young people, but they are paid so much better doing worthless things. <laughs> One of the reasons for the last financial crisis was exactly the mathematical models. Um, these mathematical models, like value at risk, are standard probability models that would be wonderful if the world of finance would be stable, predictable, but they are not wonderful in the real world of investment, at least at this world is since the 1970s and 80s. Um, value at risk has missed every crisis and prevented none. It works as long as nothing happens. Just like what you've seen here always works if uh, no downturn or upturn happens. Uh, but working as long nothing happens is like having an airbag in your car that works all the time except you have an accident. And I have a project with the Bank of England on simple heuristics for a safer world. So what do you do with the world of finance, both in regulation or predicting bank vulnerability? You will fail the moment you use the standard tools that work in the world of risk. And we investigate heuristics. Heuristics are simple rules that only look at a few parameters and try to be robust. So. For those who are statistically minded, we bet on bias in order to reduce the variability, the variance. I'll show you just one example without discussing it much. Here is an example of a fast and frugal tree. We investigate how good it is for assessing bank vulnerability. It only asks three questions. For instance, UBS had before the crisis a leverage ratio. A leverage ratio is roughly uh, the the uh, the ratio between the capital you have and the debt you have. It had a refer uh, ratio of I think it was around two percent. So it would gotten if immediately a red flag, even if it would have passed all the others. These models are not compensatory. They're not like a linear equation where you can make up for something that you don't have, they're sequential. And uh, that model does better in our first studies than the typical logistic regression models. Uh, if you want to know more about this, here is a reference. I'll give you at the end a simple example, again, about the question, should we use complex calculations for complex problems, or rather, simple heuristics. Assume you have too much money and you want to invest it. You don't want to put everything in one basket, but you want to diversify. 
but how? Harry Markowitz from the University of Chicago got the Nobel Prize in Economics for the solution. It's called the mean variance model. I'm not doing mathematics with you here. Those of you who yeah, are students at the LSE probably know that. I just want to emphasize the problem is not the calculation. The problem is the estimation of these parameters. So the means, the variances, the covariances. When Harry Markowitz made his own investments for the time after his retirement, he used his Nobel Prize winning optimization method. So we might think he did not. He used a simple heuristic, namely invest equally. So we call this one over n. n is the number of options you have. If you have only two, you do 50-50. If three, a third, a third, and so on. That can be done quite quickly. You don't have to calculate. Uh, now the question is, how good is 1 over n compared to mean variance? And uh, I'll give you an example of one study which looked at seven different investment problems. One of them, 10 American industry funds. How do you invest? With 1 over n, you're done immediately. Just do it equal. For uh, mean variance, you need lots of data to estimate your parameters. In this study, there were 10 years of stock data, which is more than most banks use. What was the result? In six out of seven cases, 1 over n made more money than mean variance, according to standard uh, criteria. And this is not a fluke. Namely, the real question that we study is, can we describe the world in which simple heuristics work better than so-called optimization models, and also the world in which the opposite is the case. And I'll show you here three features of uh, the world where 1 over n is better or worse than the others, and that also holds in general for heuristics. If you have low uncertainty, which is not the case in the stock market, only few alternatives, you don't have to estimate many parameters, and lots of data, then make it complex. That's the world of big data. Here, in the example, mean variance. If, on the other hand, you have a problem with high uncertainty, which is the case in the stock market, if you have many alternatives and relatively small amount of data, then make it simple. And that's the world of heuristics. And 1 over n is an example. And having understood that, you can ask very specific quantitative questions. For instance, if you have 50 alternatives, n equals 50, how many years of stock data would you need so that the mean variance model is likely to be better than the simple intuitive heuristic? Remember that in the uh, in this study, 10 years was too little. What do you think? <coughs> the only way to answer this is with computer simulation and with all the caveats about computer simulation. But what do you think? How many years of stock data would you need so that the mean variance model has sufficient data to do fairly stable and good parameter estimates? So how many years would you need? That it's, who said 10,000? Oh, I've never heard this estimate, yeah? 
Interesting. Any other estimates? 37. You like precision, huh? <laughs> and precision creates confidence. Huh? People think that this man knows something. Huh? <laughs> Another estimate? 250, yeah? you're closest. So the best estimate is 500 years of stock data. That means in the year 2500, people can stop relying on their intuitive heuristics and do the calculations, provided the same stocks are still around in the stock market in the first place. Huh? Now, what you see here is very important for my own research. We call this the study of ecological rationality, meaning there is no strategy that is the best in all worlds, which should be evident. But we need to work out the structure of worlds where we can expect that something simple is better than something complex or vice versa. What do you think? Do our banks understand this important relationship between simple and complex and the structure of the world? I show you a letter that my own internet bank sent me. It's in German. And I translate, sorry. It says, with Nobel Prize winning strategy to success in investment. And then the letter read, do you know Harry Markowitz? No, but he should. And you are told that Harry Markowitz won the Nobel Prize in economics, that the bank is now using his method it's a little bit late, but... <laughs> and then there's a warning here. Yeah? Don't trust your intuition. That may be too much, too simple, too simple. What this bank has not understood is that they sent the letter 500 years too early. <laughs> so let me conclude just with a note on the mathematical and the conceptual background. Why do we and should we use heuristics? The typically answer is because there's an accuracy effort trade-off, meaning if you use heuristic, you lose on accuracy, but you can do it faster. This message you can read, among others, in Danny Kahneman's recent book, book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And in his analysis, if you write it in a formula, the total error is bias plus noise. This is true in a world of risk, and it's wrong in a world of uncertainty. That's what he's not realizing. In a world of uncertainty, the bias-variance trade-off has that the answer is uh, because you use heuristics because you have to make a trade-off between what's called bias and variance. Note that the story, total error is bias and noise, would never allow that you do better with a heuristic. That cannot happen. What is bias? Bias is, think about um, a dartboard. And you throw a number of darts. And they're all, this is the bullseye, and they're all hit here, very close. So you have a bias, the difference. But no variance, they're all basically or little variance. Now think about another method, or another player, who throws darts, and they're all over the place. There's lots of variance. But they may have no bias. The mean is the same. So you see there are two kinds of errors. A simple heuristic, like 1 over n, has only bias, no variance, because it even ignores all the samples. But uh, mean, mean variance method 
have both bias and variance. So the real, the truth about using heuristic versus complex models to have a balance between a, a sound bias and not too much variance. Variance means nothing else than an overly sensitivity to the specifics of the sample you get. You can read more about this. I'm not going into this. But the consequences are a very important one. While, according to the Heuristics and Biases program of Kahneman, you are rational if you have no bias. That's wrong. You need a certain bias in order to compensate for the overly sensitivity. And if you want to read more, there's a reference. So let me finish. At this day, we have three misconceptions in the literature, in the behavioral economics literature, in the psychology literature, and they're widespread. First, heuristics produce second-best results. Optimization is always better. This is the first misconception. You've seen examples. In a world of uncertainty, that doesn't hold. And by definition, you can't opt optimize. Second, complex problems always require a complex solution. No. There are many examples where we work on where you can do better with simple heuristics. And the question is when this is the case. And finally, more information, more time, and computation is always better. You've seen it's not true. I haven't given you an example about time, so maybe I do this at the end. Is there anyone? Let's take one from sports. Uh, who of you plays baseball? Nobody. Cricket? Nobody. S soccer? Four. Good. <laughs> Let's take another sport. <laughs> How about golf? Who's playing golf? Three. Okay. Okay. Here's an experiment with golf. Beginners? and experts in golf. We now introduce, instruct both groups that they only have three seconds time to make their put. That's not much. It can be done. What happens to the beginners if they only have three second times? Do they get better or worse? Who of you thinks they get better? That's 20%. Uh, Who thinks they get worse? That's 15%. Uh, and the other, 75%, <laughs> they hide. Yeah? That's called a negative error culture. <laughs> you need to make errors in order to learn from your own errors. Okay. So the, the, uh, the beginners, when they have only three seconds time, they get worse. A beginner needs time or attention or exercise. If you learn to play the piano, you need to go by uh, your fingers and learn everything. And music only starts when you have no idea anymore what your fingers are doing. The interesting question is what happens with the experts. If the experts have only three seconds time to do their put, will they get better or worse? Who thinks better? That's half. Who thinks worse? That's a few. 
Now, the interesting thing is that the experts, if they have only three seconds time, they get actually better, and you can measure this in these experiments. Why is this the case? Their expertise is in the unconscious, so that's intuition. And if you give someone who knows very well intuitively what to do too much time, that person might start to think and to realize that there may be 30,000 people out there who think, and then that decreases. Okay, I have to do it once more until every one of you gets it. <laughs> Same experiment, beginners in golf and uh, experts. Now we instruct them to pay attention closely to their swing, to all these bodily movements. What happens with beginners when they pay attention to what they are doing? Do they get better or worse? Who thinks better? Who thinks worse? A few, when you ask your, your neighbor why you're wrong. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so beginners, yeah, it helps beginners if they pay attention to what they're doing for the same reason as before. But what happens with experts when they pay close attention to their bodily movements? Will they get better or worse? Who thinks the experts get better when they pay attention? One who thinks it's worse? Now you got it, huh? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the reason is the same. Yeah? An expert does this intuitively, and if you ask someone to pay attention who is an expert, then the thinking may interfere. You can use this now strategically in case you play, say, tennis, and you have a partner who has such a forehand that today you are on the wall, helpless. But now you know what to do. If you switch sides and he passes you, you say to him, you have such a forehand today. How do you do it? <laughs> and you have a good chance that you start thinking and the problem is solved. <laughs> so let me summarize. I invited you to a short trip among many themes, among some of the themes of risk savvy. First, in opposition to my dear colleagues who would like to nudge you or just nudge you, I argue that everyone can learn to deal with risk and uncertainty. I showed you a few simple principles that we can teach everyone, including doctors and financial advisors. Second, experts are part of the problem rather than the, problem, than the solution. And I've given you some examples uh, that we need to uh, train the experts first. Hmm? And you need to be part of that, standing up and demanding information. Third, risk is not the same as uncertainty. And that's, I think, a common error that we have in many academic fields. We need statistical thinking for problems of risk, and we need smart rules of thumb for problems of uncertainty. Finally, I showed you at least one example that less can be more in an uncertain world, that you can do better with less information, with less time and less computation. And finally, and maybe most important, a democracy that functions needs risk-savvy citizens that are not easily frightened into, into surrendering their money, their welfare, and their liberty.
Thank you so much. All right. Just before we begin the question period, I would have been instructed to remind you that there will be a book signing on stage after we finish the question period. And if you don't have a copy of the book, you are able to buy a copy of the book outside. So you would go buy a copy and then bring it back. We've got a limited amount of time for questions, but we do have time for a few. So could I see hands of people who would like to ask a question? All right. I fear we will not be able to get to everyone. So first of all, let me just ask, could you please wait until you get the microphone before you begin to ask? Please state your name and then be concise with the question. And please do make sure that it is, in fact, a question. So let us begin with the gentleman against the wall over there. Thank you very much. I have a question based on the way that the weather is portrayed in the U.S. compared to the U.K., you mentioned that in the US, when the weather forecast is made, it's a sign of probability. So someone will say it's going to be 50% chance of rain or 30% chance of rain tomorrow. In the UK, we are just told tomorrow it's going to rain at 2 o'clock in London. And that's insulting because I've got no idea of knowing whether it's a 90% chance or a 10% chance that it's. So it strikes me that some countries might be further along the road to risk savviness than others. Uh, so my question really is A, is that something that you've seen in your experience? And B, if so, why? Is it because that country's citizens are better educated mathematically? Or is it because they're just more distrustful of authority? Or is there perhaps a third, a third reason? Yeah. It is uh, correct that there is difference between countries. And the U.S. actually was the first country who used probabilities in 1965 for communicating both reports to the public. That's the thing. If it's true what you're saying, you here in the U.K. are still in the pre-probability period, like Greece. You're still there. <laughs> The, uh, but it's not consistent. It's not something about the country. For instance, in, take the example I have. In the pamphlets on mammography screening, the U.S. works without, without numbers. And here you have at least misleading numbers. <laughs> All right. Next question. All right. Uh, the gentleman in the back against the wall on the balcony... Thank you. I'm Rob Horn, Professor of Behavioral Medicine at UCL. Thank you for an excellent talk. And I wanted to um, ask a question about the startling reliability of the inaccuracy of the exchange rate predictions. Um, do you think that's because it's impossible to predict some things or just that the predictive models don't know enough? So, for example, we could predict with 100% accuracy the outcome of the turkey feeding if we understood the motivations of the human feeder. Yeah. In this case, uh, I would suspect that we have no method that we know to predict, the, similar to the stocks. Yeah? We have many people who claim that they could predict it. There's always an amazing amount of hindsight in this business. Yeah? Uh, the consequence is stop making these predictions and spend the money on something that's more useful. And uh, I, think, I think an anthropologist 
should study these kind of strange behaviors that are here, yeah, within us, huh? not somewhere in the middle of Africa. And we have plenty of that. All right, next question. Uh, the woman in the back. Thank you. You mentioned how uh, so many managers make decisions based on intuition and then spend loads of money and uh, waste loads of money and time trying to come up with all those facts to justify their decision making. But if that is a waste of time and money, then how can they uh, make their decision making process more transparent and justify their decisions to, to the people they're accountable to? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I can answer that by example. There are famous people who are very successful investment like George Soros who openly say, I go by my guts. And they can justify that. More generally, uh, there are two ways of justifying. One is by performance. One is by procedure. And this anxiety is all about procedure. You could say, look, here, here is someone who has this wonderful machine with big data computations, I have the experience that he doesn't have. And now we'll see who makes better prediction. That would be the rational thing to do, and not by procedure. All right. Um, someone from the balcony, uh, the woman in the middle there in the balcony, please. You mentioned that Germany banned uh, misleading information on uh, cancer diagnosis, which has been interesting to know. Uh, what kind of resistance did you face in the process, and how did you overcome? And what would be the lessons then to other countries be able to embed this into policymaking? No, the, the method I used was you know, threat of loss of reputation. You could use that too. And uh, it uh, just take a powerful institution like LSE. If LSE says, you know, look, there, this, and I gave you some examples yeah, of NHS leaflets uh, are misleading women about the benefits, yeah, and they are on their way to losing the trust, just like the bankers have lost the trust. Yeah, then you would have could try the same thing. Why shouldn't it work in this enlightened country if it works in Germany? All right. Uh, the problem is, if I may add, the problem is that many women's organizations are not aware of that. They think that everyone should have a right to mammography screening. Yeah. And uh, it's basically you're the servant uh, of the industry. So you may start with the women's organizations. Tear apart the pink ribbons. All right. Uh, the gentleman in the back there. Thanks. I was interested in your heuristic approach to bank vulnerability. And it struck me that I would worry about a Lucas critique response, that your bank manager is going to go, oh, that's how the Bank of England's doing it. We're now going to tick those boxes but make sure we're finding a whole yep. lot of other risks mm -hmm. somewhere else. And that leads me to the idea some of that maybe there's just an uncertainty principle in social science when it comes to measuring risk. What do you make of that proposition? No, uh, that's what you say is the typical response I get from bankers and also some <laughs> regulators. That, and, the, and the argument is, is, 
is, is uh, needs to be taken serious. If you have a, a simple regulation, take, for instance, just a leverage ratio, 10 to 1, as Mervyn King proposed, as opposed to value at risk cal- calculation, and you need to understand that value at risk calculation for a big bank um, involve estimation of thousands of parameters and the covariance matrix in the order of a million. And they use their own models. Uh, regulators cannot see through how these are being done. If it's a simple rule, they can see through. Then the question is, can we game a simple rule? Of course. But remember, the old complex system has been gamed very perfectly. And at least uh, uh, regulators can see quickly when something is being gamed. It's more transparent. All right, and that brings us to 8 o'clock sharp. And so I would like to close this session with one final thank you for Gerd Giegrenzer. Thank you.